Well, as we get ready to look at our passage, I want you to think about the most important question that you've ever asked in your life. What is the most important question you've ever asked in your life? Uh, You might, the questions that come to mind, you might think, well, you know, when I ask the question, what school should I go to, or what future career should I plan, or what job should I get, or will you hire me? (laughs) Those are some important questions, right? Uh, One of the most important questions that I ever asked in my life was when I asked my wife to marry me, and she was um, smart enough to say yes. I'm saying that because she's off in children's church right now and can't contradict me with that. But that is an important question when we ask somebody to marry us. There's all kinds of important questions that we ask in life. But as important as all of those questions that come to your mind, as important as those questions are, they're not the most important question that you can ask in life. I'd say that the most important question that you can ask is the question that the man in our passage this morning asked. And that's the question, what must I do to be saved? By far, that is the most important question that you can ask because the answer to that question has eternal impact. What must I do to be saved? You know, sometimes, especially I think in in our day and age, I say especially in our day and age because that's the day and age that we live in, and we kind of get myopic thinking about our own day and age. But I think sometimes, uh, especially when we ask somebody or present the gospel to somebody in our day, they don't really know what they need to be saved from. Uh, They can look at you like, well, you know, things are going pretty well for me. What do I need to be saved from? Well, that certainly wasn't the case with the man in our passage this morning, was it? He certainly knew that he was in trouble. Look back at verses 25 through 26 again. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open. And everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now you remember the background to where we are now that Paul and Silas had been thrown into prison for basically for messing with people's money. They had messed with people's income. They had, Paul had cast a demon out of a slave girl and this slave girl was responsible for making money for lots of people with her ability through the power of that demon to be able to tell people's fortunes. So when Paul cast the demon out of her, no demon, no fortune-telling, no fortune-telling, no money. And when there was no money, when people had lost their cash cow, had lost their income, that made a lot of folks really mad. And when it made them really mad, they beat Paul and Silas, they flogged them, and they threw them in prison to rot. But they didn't rot, did they? They didn't rot in that prison. What did they do in that prison? They did two things. They prayed and they sang. That was what they did in that prison. And after they prayed and after they sang, then God performed an amazing miracle. Sometime after that jailer, I mean, can't you just picture that jailer being lulled off to sleep by the songs of Paul and Silas? Sometime after he had been lulled off to sleep by by their songs, God shook the place. 
he shook the prison to its foundations. And in the process of shaking that prison to its foundations, God shook that jailer to his very core. All the prisoners' shackles were loosed. All of the prisoners, not just Paul and Silas. All of the prisoners that that jailer was responsible for. All of their bonds were loosed. All of the doors were opened. But more importantly than the physical shackles and the physical doors that were open, more importantly than that, that stubborn, rusted, bolted, shackled heart of the jailer was opened. His bonds were cast off. God opened that jailer's heart, just like he opened the doors of that prison. He opened his heart so that that jailer could see his desperate need. Look at verses 27 through 30. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Can you imagine what was going through that jailer's head? I mean, he I'm sure he had heard the rumors about how Christians had been miraculously released from jail in the past. Christians like Peter, who was miraculously released from prison in the past. I'm sure he had heard those rumors. I'm sure that they had reminded him of those rumors when they told him that he needed to secure those prisoners with his very life. He'd been given special instructions to make sure that whatever happened to those other Christians didn't happen to Paul and Silas. And he did everything in his power to make sure that that wouldn't happen. Remember, he fastened them in the inner cell. He fastened them in painful stocks. He hid them away in the darkest, deepest corner of the jail just to make sure that that didn't happen. Listen to me. You can do absolutely everything in your power to shut up your heart against the power of the Lord. You can try to run from him. You can try to hide from him. You can immerse yourself in distractions and work and recreation and activities all you want. You can do everything in your power to lock God out of your life. But even if God has to shake you to your absolute very core to get your attention, he will. He certainly got the attention of this jailer, didn't he? Think about it. That jailer had personally picked the most secure part of the prison. He personally drug Paul and Silas there. He personally fastened their feet in those painful stocks. He personally did everything in his power to do what he thought that he was supposed to do. But in an instant, while he was asleep, God showed him the absolute futility of all of that. The very best that the jailer had to offer was less than nothing in the face of God's power. All the hope that he placed in himself, all the hope that he placed in his abilities, all the hope that he placed on his competence was gone in an instant. 
but. Don't you just love that conjunction there in verse 28? Verse 28, I don't know if you mark in your Bible, but I, I have that circled in my Bible. But. Do you suppose Paul was thinking about this incident when he used that same exact conjunction in his letter to the church at Ephesus? In his letter to the church at Ephesus in in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 7, this is what Paul wrote. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Who's he talking about here? He says, we all were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then there's that conjunction again. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God. Maybe Paul was thinking about the Philippian jailer when he wrote that. Or maybe he was just thinking about himself. Maybe he was just thinking about what happened to him on the road, of Dama- on the road to Damascus. I-, I know when I read that passage, I think of myself. Do you think of yourself? See, apart from Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're even more dead than this jailer would have been had Paul and Silas not shouted out to him to keep him from killing himself physically. No matter how nice you are, no matter how generous you are, no matter how hard a worker you are, no matter how good you are to your family and your neighbors, no matter how smart or attractive or successful or any of that stuff, no matter any of that stuff, apart from Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are a child of wrath. It means that no matter how good or how bad your life is now, apart from Jesus, you're storing up an eternity of white, hot, omnipresent, all-powerful wrath of God. Eternal wrath. But God. Now, did the jailer fully realize the weight of God's judgment on him? I I doubt it. But he was obviously under conviction, wasn't he? I I know that I didn't fully realize the the full extent or the weight of God's judgment on me when as a 12-year-old boy, God's Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and convinced me of my need for a Savior. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you? 
Is the Holy Spirit showing you your need for a Savior? If He is, then you need to ask the same question that this jailer, this Philippian jailer did. The question that he asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas gave the answer in verse 31, didn't they? Verse 31 says, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. What must I do to be saved? When the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin, that's the natural place that we want to go, isn't it? What do I need to do? How can I fix myself? I'm in trouble. How can I fix myself? Maybe if I just work harder. Maybe if I just start doing some more religious things. Maybe if I just show up to church more often. Maybe if I read my Bible more often. Maybe if I get wet in the tank back there. Maybe if I do those kind of things. Maybe that's what I can do to be saved. Quit drinking, quit cussing, quit sleeping around. Maybe that'll fix me. How ridiculous would it have been for this jailer to, after all of this happened, how ridiculous would it have been for him to run back in and try to lock up all the things that had been, that God had unloosed? How ridiculous would it have been for him to go and shut the doors and bolt the doors? Well, you know, this time maybe I'll, maybe I'll just weld them shut. That'll keep them out. (laughs) That'll keep God out, won't it? I'll just work hard. Uh, maybe I'll just do better next time. He didn't think that, did he? He didn't think that better because he had finally reached the point in his life where he knew that he could not do better. And apart from Christ, neither can you. Apart from Christ, neither could I. That's why each of us has to come to a point in our life where we fully realize our absolute helplessness before the Lord. God, I can't fix me. God, I can't fix it. I can't fix myself. I can't make myself better. I can't make myself more acceptable to you. Each of us has to get to the point where we call for lights and tremble before the Lord and ask Him, what must I do to be saved? And when you get to that point, and his answer is the same for you, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Notice how that answer starts. It starts with the words, believe in. Some of your translations might say, believe on. It's a preposition. It's a preposition of location. It doesn't make a difference whether it's an in or an on. It's just believe in, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, place your belief, place your faith, place your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, this isn't about somehow ginning up some sort of an emotion or some sort of a work of belief in your life. Like, I'm going to work really hard to believe. Now, don't try to make belief into some kind of a work that you could quantify. It's not about that. It's not about any work that you can do. It's about the person that you're believing in. It's the person that you're thrusting your life upon. It's believing in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, that means that you believe His Word. It means that you believe that He's God in the flesh, that He's the second person of the Trinity. It means that 
He left it, that you believe that he left his home in heaven to become flesh and dwell among us. It means that you believe that he was born a virgin. It means that you believe that he lived a sinless life, 100% God and 100% man in the same person. It means that you believe that he willingly went to the cross to die a death that he didn't deserve, to die in your place as an atoning sacrifice, to pay the sin debt that you and I could never pay. It means that you believe that he rose again on the third day to clothe you in his righteousness because we don't have any righteousness of our own. And to give you new life in him. It means that you believe that He's seated right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He's standing as a go-between between us and the Father. He is the one mediator between God and man. And it also means that you believe that He's coming back to get us soon. Sooner than we all realize. See, believing in Jesus, that's what believing in Jesus is. But listen, if you just sat down and you wrote all those notes out like you're trying to memorize a list of facts and you say, I believe that list of facts, that's not what belief in Jesus is. It's not about being able to recite a list of facts. It's not about being able to Google stuff in your head and come up with a list. This isn't about information. Believing in Jesus means that you're trusting Him with your life. You're trusting Him with everything that you are, everything that you were, and everything that you're going to be. Believing in Jesus means that you are staking your eternal destiny on the fact that Jesus is who He said He is, and that He did what He said He did. Believing in Jesus is trusting Him enough that you bow your heart before Him as Lord of your life. Notice verse 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus. See, this isn't just giving mental assent to a list of facts. It's recognizing Jesus as your Creator, as your sustainer, as Lord and Master and King of your life. It's removing yourself from the throne of your life and allowing Jesus to reign and rule as Lord of your life. I was in a discussion with a fellow this week, and he was talking about some misunderstandings about accepting Jesus. And I said, really, more than what you're describing, that Jesus would just be an addition to your existing life. No, belief in Jesus is really a hostile takeover of your heart. Jesus is now the king of your life, ruling over your life. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Some translations say compels us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. That's Jesus died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, 
died, and was raised. When you trust Jesus as Lord of your life, you are no longer living for yourself. You're living with Him as your King. Know this. Jesus will not be your Savior unless He's also your Lord. Jesus is not some sort of fire insurance that you can attach onto your unchanged life. Jesus is not some sort of a talisman or a lucky charm that you can carry around to make your life better. No, Jesus is new life in you. He's actively and continually recreating you into His image. Have you been saved? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust Him as Lord and Master of your life? If you have, then it's going to show. It certainly showed in the life of the Philippian jailer, didn't it? Look at verses 32 through 34. And they spoke the word, they, being Paul and Silas, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let me tell you the story about how an old-timey church envelope led me to getting saved. (laughs) I I, I think that my testimony about the old-timey church envelope is probably the most unique one that you'll hear in a while. I've told you before that I was raised in a Christian home, grew up in a Christian home, been going to a Baptist church, Southern Baptist church, since probably nine months before I was born. So I grew up in a church home, One of the things about growing up in a church home is there are many tremendous blessings that come from being raised in that kind of environment. Tremendous blessings. I wouldn't trade it for the world. But there's also a danger with that. And the danger is that it's very easy when you grow up in that environment to just assume that you're a Christian. Just assume that it came with the furniture in the house. Just assume that without appropriating a true saving relationship with Jesus. That's what happened to me. I just made that assumption for years. Church attendance, Sunday school, that wasn't an option at my house. My dad was one of those that you live under my roof, you're going to follow my rules. One of his rules was going to church and going to Sunday school. But that was fine because I loved it as a kid especially. Every Sunday when I walked into Sunday school, back in the churches that, that, that I grew up in, as soon as you walked into Sunday school, the, the teacher would hand you uh, an envelope. And those, those old envelopes had check boxes on them for all different kinds of things. There was a check box to see if you're on time. There was a check box to see if you brought your Bible. There was a check box to see if you'd read your Bible. There was a checkbox to see if you'd read it every day. There was a checkbox to see if you'd invited somebody to church. There were all these different checkboxes on there, but there was also a checkbox on there asking you if you had been saved. 
Well, for years, I didn't think anything about it. I'd just go through and I'd make my little checks. And, you know, if I had more checks than anybody else, I'd kind of be all puffy and proud and all that kind of stuff. I had no problem checking that one on there that if you've been saved until one day, until one Sunday. And I realized, you know what? I've just been checking that box. When I was 12 years old, I could not bring myself to check that box. See, all along I'd been assuming that I'd been saved. But listen to me. Salvation is not assumed. Salvation comes when the Holy Spirit opens your heart and convicts you of your need for a Savior through His proclaimed Word. And then you personally commit to follow Him as your Lord and Master and Savior. What must you do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, how are you going to know if you're really saved? (laughs) You'll follow your profession with action. Notice I didn't say the action comes first, but if you're truly saved, the action will follow the profession. Now, I want to close this morning with just four really quick things that will help you know if you're truly saved. First thing, if you're truly saved, you will have a hunger for God's Word. Verse 32 says that the jailer immediately took Paul and Silas to his house for what reason? So they could speak the word to him and his family. He immediately had a hunger for the word. See, if Jesus has saved you, he's going to give you a hunger for his word. This is the very word of God. If you're in love with somebody... If you're in love with your husband or you're in love with your wife, you desperately want to hear their words. You want to hear from them. Why would it be different with Jesus? If you're in love with Jesus, you're going to have a hunger for his word. Do you have that hunger? Do you long to hear Jesus' word preached and taught? Do you seek out times? Do you actively seek out times where you can read the Bible or where you can listen to the Bible being read and taught? Do you actively seek to be taught the Scripture by good teachers and by reading good books? You see, if you're truly saved, you'll have a hunger for the Word. Secondly, if you're truly saved, you'll demonstrate repentance. Repentance. There's a lot of confusion about what repentance is. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for your sin. Like, I remember when, when I was growing up, when I'd get caught doing something I wasn't supposed to do, and as soon as I'd get caught and my mom or dad would start to dis- discipline me about it, I'd say, oh, I'm sorry. My dad one time said, I think you're just sorry about getting caught. Actually, one time he got so tired of hearing that, he said, boy, you're the sorriest Sorriest boy I ever met. (laughs) Repentance is more than just feeling sorry. It's not just feeling regret for your past wrongdoing. No, repentance is actively turning away from your sin. The the word repentance, it, it was a military command word. It was actually carries the idea 
of an about face. You're heading in this direction, then all of a sudden, using your will and your ability and the Spirit's power, you're going to turn from that. And what did that look like in the jailer's life? Verse 33 says that he walked with Paul and Silas out of that dungeon. He took them from where they were, took them out of that dungeon. He took them home with him, and he washed their wounds. He washed the wounds that he had put on them. Now, you think that was a career killer? You think he had much of a future as a jailer anymore after that? He might have been able to explain away, you know, there was an earthquake, so everything broke loose, but hey, they stayed there. But do you think he could explain away, no, I took them home and I washed the wounds that we put on them? Now, that was a career killer. But it showed that he was truly repentant for his past sins, and it truly showed that he was turning from those sins and turning to Jesus. Let me ask you, are you still holding on to your sin? Are you still holding on to your sexual sin? Are you still holding on to your selfish sin? Are you still holding on to your greedy sin or your lazy sin or whatever your sin is? Are you still holding on to that? Now, don't get me wrong. Salvation doesn't mean that you won't still struggle with sin. We all still struggle with sin, but the point is is that a believer will struggle with our sin. We'll struggle. And salvation and belief and being empowered by the Holy Spirit does mean that even in the midst of that struggle, you will begin to see victory in the midst of that struggle. Now, it doesn't mean that we are immediately brought into perfection. doesn't mean that we will ever see perfection until we see Jesus. What it means is that we're struggling to grow more and more like Christ every day. We're repenting. We're living a life of continual repentance, continual turning away from our sin and turning toward Jesus. If you're truly saved, you'll be continually living that life of repentance. You'll also be obedient. Obedience is actively doing what Jesus commanded you to do. It's actively following Jesus. It's actively doing what God has told us to do in His Word. Another word for that is discipleship. Another word for that is just following Jesus. And the first step to following Jesus for a believer is the simplest command that He gave. The first step to following Jesus as a believer is following Him, His example in the waters of baptism. Verse 33 says that the jailer was baptized later on. The jailer was baptized after he thought about it and discussed it for a while. He was baptized after he prayed about it. Doesn't say that, does it? When does verse 33 say that the jailer was baptized? He was baptized at once. He immediately obeyed. He didn't wait for a more convenient time. He didn't even wait till daylight. (laughs) He wanted to get baptized now. He believed Jesus saved him, and he was immediately baptized to profess that belief to a watching world. Baptism was his first step of obedience, but that certainly wasn't his last step of obedience. 
because he continued to show that obedience in his hospitality and, and the way that he enjoyed spending time with his fellow believers. And that takes us to the fourth thing that will happen if you're truly saved. You're going to have a hunger for the Word. You're going to live a life of repentance. You'll be obedient to God's Word. And finally, you will love your family and you'll enjoy spending time with them. Now, when I said that, immediately, most of us are thinking our blood relatives. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your physical family. Because your relationship with your physical family is is based on your genetics and your bloodline. No, I'm talking about your church family. That's not based on your blood. That's based on Jesus' blood. If you're saved, then your relationship with us as fellow believers is far deeper than your physical family relationships. Verse 34 says that the jailer brought Paul and Silas into his house and fed them. And just a few hours earlier, he was flogging them. And now he's feeding them. Brought them into his house to feed them. But not only that, not only was he feeding them, they were rejoicing together. (laughs) They had church up in there, didn't they? (laughs) They were rejoicing together in the middle of that jailer's house. The point is, they gathered together as a family of believers. As the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10 says they weren't neglecting to gather together. They weren't forsaking the assembling of themselves together. See, saved people gather together to hear the Word preached. Saved people gather together to sing the Word together. Saved people gather to see the Word pictured in the ordinances together. Saved people gather to worship and work and witness and give and learn and serve and train and go together. Saved people gather together. Have you covenanted to be a part of this church family? Are you still content to sit on the sidelines as a casual observer? How can you know if you're truly saved? You'll have a hunger for the Word. You'll live a life of repentance. You'll be obedient to God's Word. And you'll love gathering with your church family. So if I was to hand you one of those old school envelopes this morning, and I looked online to see if I could find one and stick it in the, stick a copy of it in the, <laughs> in the bulletin this morning. But if I was to hand you one of those bulletins this morning, or one of those, those envelopes this morning, how would you check that box? Are you saved? If you're not saved, then I'm asking you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, if you're here this morning and you know that you're saved, but you're not as hungry for the Word as you should be, and maybe you need to come forward during the invitation, and maybe you need to publicly commit to reading and studying your Bible more. If the Lord showed you some areas of sin in your life that you're still clinging to and that you need to turn from, then maybe you need to come forward during the invitation and you need to make your repentance, your commitment to repentance, public. Coming forward doesn't mean that you're repenting, but it does mean that you're committing to repent. And when you do that, we're going to come alongside you and we'll help you with that. 
If you know there are areas in your life where you're not obediently following Jesus, if you've not been baptized as a believer, if you're not growing in discipleship, if you're not making disciples, if you're not being a witness, then maybe you need to come forward and publicly commit to obeying what Jesus has commanded you to do. Or if you've not covenanted with us to become a member of this Parkview Baptist Church family, maybe you need to come forward during the invitation and let us start that process with you. Here's the deal. The jailer in our passage this morning, all he had to do was ask one question. You don't even have to ask that this morning. That question's been answered for you. You already know the answer. All you have to do is respond. Let's pray. Father, your word says that before anyone can get saved, they have to hear the gospel proclaimed. Father, to the best of my ability, I've done that this morning. Father, your word also says that for anybody to get saved, your spirit has to open their heart. Now, Lord, I I believe that your spirit has been doing that in our midst this morning. So, Father, the gospel has been presented, and your spirit has opened hearts to receive that gospel. So, Father, that only leaves one thing. In order to be saved, each of us has to Believe in the Lord Jesus. We have to believe that gospel that has been proclaimed. So, Father, I would ask that for anyone in here who's not trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. Uh, that as your spirit has opened their hearts to hear the word that was proclaimed, hear the gospel that was proclaimed, that, Father, that they would willingly bow their heart to you this morning. Father, for those of us who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, what, Father, would today be a day of, of recommitment, Recommitment to acting like we're saved. Recommitment to living like we're saved. Father, if there's anyone here who's trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, not followed your will in baptism, Lord, I'd ask that you would convict them. If they've not followed your will in becoming an active covenant part of a local body of believers. And Father, I'd ask that you would convict them. And Father, by the power of your Spirit, I would ask that each of us would respond to the way that you're convicting. In Jesus' name.
Amen.